Hey guys, if you like this podcast and you want to support it, please like, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. That's uh, very important for newer podcasts. And also please consider uh, donating at patreon.com slash 185 miles south. That's patreon.com slash 185 miles south. Thanks for the support. Hundred eighty five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. This episode was recorded on May fourth, two thousand nineteen. Today we have Tim from Amenity, House of Suffering, and Adult Crash. Missing any? No. You jammed a song on Tit Ranch. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, uh, Tim is very similar to uh, the guy I had the first week, Joe Rebus, in that I hate to say you're older, but you're older. And you're like a, a rad positive energy that everyone's excited to see around. And you seem so friendly and welcoming to everyone, which is awesome. And also kind of crazy because you've, you've seen it all, right? You started going to shows in the early eighties and you're still interested, which yeah. is like inspirational that you, you still, you find merit in like a youth culture. I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you start going to shows? Um, I mean, in the early eighties in high school, you know, probably like, uh, uh, with an 83, 82, um, that and, and shows at that time, at least for me, were random little um, local, very local bands. Was it wasn't necessarily at bigger hall shows or anything that did come around that same time. But um, you know, there are bands who I can't even remember who they were um, that would might play somewhere in Chula Vista or something like that. Well, where would a band like Battalion of Saints play in like '83 in San Diego? Uh, Battalion of Saints, uh, San Diego at the time, there was like Adams Avenue Theater, which is now a fabric store um, on Adams. Uh, there was Fairmont Hall. And I would say most of the time I saw Battalion of Saints was probably at, at Fairmont Hall. And uh, and then Jackie Robinson, YMCA. I don't think I ever saw Battalion of Saints play at Jackie Robinson. Uh, they were probably broken up by the time Jackie Robinson uh started getting going, but uh, primarily at a place like Fairmont Hall. And they were drawing about how many cubes? Oh, you know, I'm not good at numbers, but... Um, like, were these big ragers? These were, big, these were bigger shows than the big shows, quote-unquote, that you would go to in the hardcore today. But Fairmont Hall held a uh, few hundred people, so I don't know. Fairmont Hall might have something like three, 400 people. Um, and I could be wrong with that. Adams Avenue had twice as many, at least of that. Adams Avenue might have, Jesus. um, you know, over a thousand people, like, you know, bigger bands, like say the Dead Kennedys, Black Flag playing there. And all these um, bands came through. And, uh, well, what do you mean? They came all through down to San Diego. Uh, the ones I mentioned, yeah. San Diego was always though, kind of, um, 
at least for me, kind of dry for the bands that I really wanted to see. Um, Which was who? Well, like, you know, I wanted to see, like, for instance, Negative Approach. almost got to see them in in San Diego in the early 80s and um, saw, ironically, with the Oxnard connection here, ironically, I saw uh, Dr. No in their place. But, um, you know, I remember Negative Approach was a band that was like, oh, my God, you know, because I wanted to see. And, I, and so I did see at that time there would be bands that would come through, like, say, Seven Seconds, Youth Brigade. But, you know, we wanted to see um, we wanted to see a Negative Approach. We wanted to see all these East Coast hardcore bands sure. that really never came anywhere near quite this this way. Maybe they could skip and go to Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, but, you know, instead there was a lot of, like, um, English kind of punk bands, Abrasive Wheels, who, honestly, I would not know Abrasive Wheels if we were listening to them right now. Sure. And I'm knocking that, but it just wasn't the taste for, for a 17-year-old. Yeah, band. you wanted the crazy shit. I, yeah, I wanted the, I wanted the, the stuff from D.C. And, and Boston. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we would get stuff like that. Um, and some of that stuff, don't get me wrong, was, was good that came through like that. GBH would play and Exploited and those kinds of bands. And then Battalion of Saints would, would be a support act or, or Social Distortion would come down here. It was a lot of stuff like that. The Minutemen, which were always great to see. Um, but yeah, what I wanted to, to see and really be a part of was this slightly more, you could say, hardcore scene. Yeah, the faster stuff. It was this other stuff. And then you know, there were parts of that coming down. I mentioned uh, Dr. No and um, uh, Justice League. I remember Justice League playing. I was really stoked to see them. Um, you know, and then Negative Approach was supposed to come through. And, like, the, the I'm going, I'm at the show. You know, there was a flyer and everything at the show. And there I am waiting, and somebody comes up on the mic and says, I just in case everybody hasn't heard, uh, Negative Approach will not be played tonight. They broke up last night in Los Angeles. And wow. Like, ah, you know. Wow. It was a bummer. So I, I have to honestly say I've never really given Dr. No a chance because I, I so bitter because of that. I couldn't have that. hilarious. Uh, and then actually then when Negative Approach finally did play out in California, Forget what year that was in, in Pomona, um, you know, at, at this reunion period. Um, and I told him about that. And he said, oh, well, that guy was lying because we didn't even make it to Los Angeles. He said, we, we didn't even get anywhere near California. Uh, it was probably just, he probably just wanted people to keep coming to the show. Sure. So they never made it out back in the day then. So back then, no. You know, I regret not going to that Pomona show so bad. That was awesome. Show. I know. Rob always talks about it. it was like the greatest show. It was. It was incredible. Yeah. That's awesome. So, did Minor Threat come to San Diego? Minor Threat came to San Diego. Didn't see Minor Threat. Um, did you just miss them by a year? Uh, maybe it was. Yeah, I missed them. You know, obviously there was no internet. Connection is a little different. Sure. And plus, all that music scene was just completely oddball yeah like, you know you didn't always hear about different shows and and then i think also too because it was special to a lot of people i think a lot of people didn't want to share even that hey this band is kind oh of they're bogarting the threat show yeah already that's funny and um but I, I i you know i know the stories of that show is always that that was 
one of the most violent shows. And that's when Ian McKay said, I'm never in any band. I'm never going to play San Diego again. And he didn't until I guess it was the late nineties um, with Fugazi because it was such a, uh, it was such a mess. And, and I remember uh, a good friend, Chris Chacon, who did uh, BCT uh, tapes. And he went to, I believe what he said was he went to that show, but he didn't go in because he saw so many people that had been bloodied and things from fighting. But it was a, it was a minor threat. It was Husker Du. And um, I imagine it was the Battalion of the Saints was probably on that. Yeah. But I don't remember exactly. The flyers around, you can find that. That's kind of a rep of San Diego that it was always a little, maybe a little more violent. And why do you think that was? Do you think it's that there's so much military culture here that also you have like the East County, you have like, I don't know, you have a convergence of military beach culture and then also like that East County vibe. So it seems like it's like a trifecta of, of meatheadedness. Yeah, there, there was, there was a lot. There was also though, you know, cause when I think back, not even to hardcore, but when I think back to life in say uh, 1980 and I wasn't going to shows in 1980 or I think of life in 1970, something um san diego was very um downtown for instance was that was you were at the end of the road you were mm-hmm. downtown um downtown was there was there were still some old buildings there now of course it's all gone but there were all these motels uh, there were people that lived downtown a lot of mental health issues uh, a lot of um, people out on the streets um, not quite the homeless Thing that has in downtown now, but lots of people in these motels, and there was lots of drunk sailors downtown or up in Oceanside, um, drunk Marines, and uh, lots of you know prostitution and different things down there. It was a much dirty, seedier town than it is than it is today, and I think San Diego just uh, I think that was I think that was part of it. That was when you know, that was when people started using the term slow death. And I think that was because when you looked at San Diego, it was like, oh, my God, yeah. it, it was it was in bad shape. And um, and so that I, that's how I when I when I think back on just San Diego in general, I think of those kinds of things. And I think of the way, you know, from the 70s, there was this thing started slowing down, coming to a halt. And then the 80s were coming in a lot faster. And, you know, when I say 70s coming to a halt, I mean, after the 60s, all this upheaval, all this going on, and then it all got kind of shut down with drugs and things started screeching to a halt. And then the 70s, the 80s kind of crashed into it. And I think with people in general in San Diego, um, I think a lot of the violence and things like that was just almost just, just this kind of frustration young people had at that time in like, what am I a part of? What, what am my community? What is this community that I live in and, and what's it like? And, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to defend people that did some really stupid things to other people and, and hurt them um, back then at, at shows because there were some really bad things. But I will say that a lot of those people were, Besides drugs, um, you have to look at what brought them to those drugs and brought them to that anger and brought them to that violence. And I think it was just feeling like 
what am I a part of? Yeah, it's the end of the road for me. Where do I I connect in in this city? Where's my community? And people were finding that in punk and hardcore. But I think a lot of people were just like, just flying by the seat of their pants. Like in this whole music scene where this aggressive music is going on and there's no real focal point in it, maybe quite yet, sort of. But, um, so, you know, at the, you go know, the shows and there would be, sure, there'd be people with mohawks and shaved heads and leather jackets and there'd be the more skater-like kids and, um, but there'd also be bikers, uh, like real bikers, not just the guy that bought the Harley, but right. like real bikers. There were um, communists, they're passing out uh, pamphlets and information um, there were gothic people. There were some some hippies. Um, there were some other people that I wouldn't even know how to describe. And then I think you just put them all in this pressure cooker sure. of Fairmont Hall or whatever it may be. <laughs> and you got the music wound up and the alcohol and the, and the meth. And um, and it just would be you know this this mess. And like I said, I, I don't want to defend people for doing those things because most of the people knew enough not to, you know, hit someone over the head with a folding chair. But, um, I think, I think when you look at the the context of what people were doing at the time with their lives and in their community, what their community was doing, um, it was kind of, the punk scene was kind of made to, in San Diego at least, was kind of made to explode at that point. Yeah. And who were the people running with it other than like a battalion of saints? What, uh, what bands were like the forebearers? Um, well, yeah, battalion of saints was probably the prime one. Um, you know, and I, I, they were always great live. They're a great band to see. Like my first guitar hero would be Chris Smith to see him, see him playing and just think, wow, look at that guy playing. I didn't know anything about guitar. It's like, wow, this is awesome. Um, and then there were other bands that didn't, they didn't quite reach up to, to Battalion of Saints. Um, you know, Manifest Destiny, um, was one. They had a, a couple records out. Ministry of Truth was kind of going the more positive route. And Manifest Destiny was what, Encinitas area? Encinitas area, yeah. Yeah, I love the LP. Um, Personality Crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I know I'm forgetting a lot of names. But there were a lot of local bands that didn't go too long. But at that time, bands just didn't go long. Yeah, well, a year a year in the lifespan of a a sixteen year old punk kid is, is a long time. Pretty damn long. Yeah. So, do you think that a lot of the the negative feelings of like the the shows in the city then is is why you wanted to do a really positive band? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And I would even say be prior to that, like when I mentioned. You know, just San Diego as a whole in the 80s or the 70s. Um, you know, when I was, um, you know, a lot of people think I was born in Chula Vista. I was, I was born in Stockton, California. Are oh, you gonna and break Guzman's heart? <laughs> well, you know, the neighborhood we're in right now is actually. Is that about Stockton? I just learned that. Yeah. Isn't that wild? It's just little, a little pocket. Little things, yeah, yeah. Little pocket of Stockton here, and. Um, and so growing up in Chula Vista, uh, you know, probably moved to Chula Vista when I was like three years old. Um, it, it was, it wasn't quite, it wasn't seedy like downtown San Diego was, 
but it was very empty, very slow moving. Um, There wasn't like, um, wasn't anything I was picking up negative or anything at the time, but it was just more wide open. I loved the canyon. Everywhere east of Chula Vista was just canyon area. And that was my playground. That was that was like my first love um, before skateboarding and hardcore and guitars or anything. It was it was a canyon and we'd just explore for miles. We'd be little kids. So would you just ride your bike out there and seven, then explore? Eight, just hiking out there, yeah. Seven, yeah. eight, nine, ten years old, and we'd hike for miles out in the canyon. And our parents knew it too, but you didn't think anything was gonna happen, and nothing did. But um, but you know, by the time the eighties came around and everything started getting developing and and I, I can remember seeing um, the canyon just just tore up, and they were going to be putting homes in and everything. And, and I, I can remember standing there, and there was a man in a suit. I mean, it was something out of a movie, and he was um, he was a developer, and he told me that too. I don't remember how old I was, just less than a teenager, and he told me he was a de- developer, and they were putting homes there. And I really wanted to, to tell that guy off, yeah. but I was a little kid and I, my, you know, I learned from my parents, don't talk that way to people. But um, I think that's for me was kind of one of the, the first times as a human being where I was really kind of feeling like some angst. Yeah. And so I'm like, and, you know, there were other things I saw war on TV and sure. things like that. But this was like really personal. But yeah, this is your backyard and, and something that's changing. You have no control over it. No and control. you feel it's changing. Like history is moving the wrong way. Yeah. You know, exactly. it's a backslide a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Why is this happening? And so, um, so I think that was part for me also being, um, you know, as a kid, I can remember uh, elementary school, some guy, I, I totally remember the scene that's, at the edge of our playground the school and we're all getting out of school we're leaving and there's a van and I remember it was playing uh, Take a Walk on the Wild Side um, KGB and um, had this van and some guy you know to me he was a big kid he was in the hindsight he was probably 17 sure know? but uh, he was like hey dude. and he said it mocking like, hey dude want to buy a lid you know and I just remember thinking you know and I that, that was it I remember thinking, I'm never going to do drugs. I'm never going to drink. And um, screw these guys. And then there were lots of, you know, post-hippies. They weren't really hippies. They just latched on to the, the drugs and all that yeah. at the end. And they'd be sleeping out in the park, stoned or whatever. And um, so I really latched on to this new thing of hardcore. And when I started learning about different bands, like Bad Brains, you know, I read something about Bad Brains. First of all, that they were black. And when I saw Punk through Skateboarder Magazine or whatever it may be, I wasn't sure. And I saw pictures of the Sex Pistols and they had swastikas, you know, and I like, I didn't understand. I'm like, would I be okay with this? Like, if right. I accept it. But I learned about Bad Brains and like, well, these guys are black. Well, then I guess it's okay for me to be there. And, um, and Minor Threat, then learning about, you know, there's this, this band and they're talking about, about straight edge and I was already checking out hardcore at that time um, and punk bands at that time but then that could just kind of seal the deal and then definitely then with the manager was like yeah this has got to be this has got to be something positive um, because you know when I was in in the early 80s in, in high school I was already thinking I was maybe thinking in hardcore but I said yeah I want my I want my life to have some positive purpose some positive 
intent. I don't want to be the burnouts at the park. I don't want to be violent. I don't want to do this and that. What do I want to do? How, how can I put forth a positive message? And at that time, uh, my interest was really in journalism and editorial cartooning and things like that. And, um, but that just seems so far off for a 16 year old. Sure. You know, and the more I learned about journalism and journalists, it was kind of, eh. and, uh, so, you know, the next logical step from journalism is of course learning to play guitar <laughs> and, uh, and starting a hard program. Yeah. And was Amenity your first band? Did you play around in other yeah, little Amenity, bands? Amenity was the first one. So the seven inch is 87. Did yeah. you demo first? Um, no, no, we, um, so you're starting 86 inch or you we think probably started, 80, started um, late 80, I'm not sure, late 85. It may have been. Mm-hmm. And, um, when we started, it was, and I, I learned this in, uh, your other podcasts of very some similar, uh, things is that, uh, when we started, it was, uh, you know, Sergio Barry and I, and nobody had anything else. I had a guitar. And I didn't know how to tune it. Not only did I not know how to tune it, I didn't know guitar had to be tuned. <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant. I thought sure. these, these things here are just to hold the strings on it. Sure. And, um, and so, yeah, we were just kind of screwing around. Barry didn't have drums. I think maybe he had sticks, and he was just like hitting the pillow. Bounding. Just hitting the pillow, yeah. and we're just trying to, to make something. Yeah. And then Sergio said, hey, I think I want to buy a bass. And we're like, whoa, you know, and. And we, we bought a bass and then we got a drum set for, um, uh, what did we trade for it? Um, I think it, it was, there was some amount of cash, um, not much and something else was traded into it and for, for some reason. I, I, I don't remember, but, um, 150 bucks on a dog. Yeah. Probably not even 150 bucks. <laughs> I don't even think it was that. But so Barry had these drums then, and now we were like, you know, and, you know, like has been said before, once we were together and like three of us with instruments, wow, you know, it was like, you know, complete noise, I'm sure, to anybody else, but to us, it was was just... But you've still been listening to punk for a few years, you kind of understood what a song was. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, I mean, it came together pretty quickly then, if you're starting in 85 and you do a a 7-inch and 87, and it's a pretty... It's a very raw sound, but it is a developed sound. You're writing hardcore songs with starts and stops and fast parts and yeah. breakdowns and yelling, and yeah. it's good. Yeah, we we uh, but very raw. We oh yeah yeah we at that that was uh, recorded on a, a little four track cassette recorder. Mm-hmm. Bob Byerly uh, with Vinyl Communications uh, recorded it in his backyard, and um, we had like I said we we started practicing with without instruments. And then once we got going, um, we played uh, Pete Pete Navarro in his backyard. Not his backyard, but his downstairs sort of a basement that we played in. And um, us, a band called Reality. The drummer of Reality, Pat, is the drummer of of Adult Crash. Mm -hmm. And um, we played in there, and Bob went to that show. well, actually, I don't think he went to our first show there. Maybe it was the second one. But somewhere in between there, we saw a flyer. And I worked at a surf shop at the time, RC Surf Lines. And I remember a bunch of people came in, skated in, like, hey, check this out. And there's a flyer. And 
it said something like punk rock in Chula Vista, you know, it was this, this flyer and it told about this band neighborhood watch. And we're like, <clears throat> like what? Who, who's this other band? Yeah. And the show is at Vinyl Communication Studio. It's like, what, what is this? You yeah. know, we, we couldn't believe it. And we're like, well, somebody else is out there in Chula Vista doing this too. And so we all went to that and immediately there's, you know, just this great bond. And, and, you know, and, and at the time these, we were still going, we were going to all these San Diego shows. Um, lots more now were happening at Jackie Robinson, you know, Discharge Blast, COC, uh, Dag Nasty, um, Youth Brigade, all, all these bands are playing there now. And, um, and those were becoming very more and more violent. Uh, of shows and so about that point I don't I can't I think maybe I would say at, at this dang nasty show there was a real turning point um, because it was it was so violent and I th- right about that time it seemed to me like my timeline could be off but right about that time I think all these little there were all these little scenes Chula Vista Pacific Beach um, Claremont all these other um, scenes that were going on and they were all meeting up going to these bigger shows but I think when the shows got so bad to where it, you just didn't feel like going there and seeing or being at risk um, all these scenes kind of pulled back and kind of just developed their own little scene so then the Chula Vista scene was developing Claremont Pacific Beach and, and all kinds of other scenes, little, and some of these scenes, so-called scenes may have just been one band sure. and friends or two bands and others had four or five bands, but they were all developing all very valid and all trying to, to get something done. And uh, so right about that time, I think when, like I said, when we connected with Neighborhood Watch, we realized, wow, there's all these other bands. We're going to have all these other bands in Chulvis. And we were, we were, there was a lot of bands starting in Chula Vista at the time. And so, um, so then when Bob said, Hey, you know, they, oh, and then to top it off, when we go to the show, Neighborhood Watch has a record, has a seven inch. Yeah. And we're like, Oh my God, you know, we could, it was so cool. There's this band from Chula Vista and they got this record out. Thought that was, that was so cool. And, um, and so at some point, Bob asked us, hey, you, you know, you guys want to do seven inch? I can record it here. Let's have put it out. And we were just blown away. Sure. Like, wow, we're going to we're going to do a seven inch. We just couldn't couldn't believe it. And it was um, so it was it was recorded. We had already been playing a while at that time, but we just didn't even see. I, I think we wanted to do a, a record somewhere along the way, but we didn't really see that as a possibility yet because we were just in here in the circle of Chula Vista bands and none of us knew anything about how to put a record out. We knew it was possible and there were all these independent records out there. Yeah. But we didn't know yet how Well, there was a lot to it back then. I mean, I remember even the first time that I ever did a record would have been like 96-ish. And like, you had to get something pressed. It was like, there's all these different people you had to go to. Like I had to go to this like outside guy for like the yeah. mastering. Yeah. You got to like find this guy that can master it in a special way. Then like you, you couldn't buy like the labels from the same guy that was pressing the records. So you had to like get the labels somewhere. And then like the labels had to get sent to the pressing plant. And yeah. it was like, yeah. it's just a lot for kids. Like you kind of need a little handholding. It was. Yeah. Even the covers and our, our record was delayed because the cover that was going to be printed is going to be printed at this this place in Chula Vista and um, we took them the art 
And it was going to be, it wasn't just going to be Xerox. It was, wasn't going to be just put in a copy machine. It was going to be actually printed. Yeah, the cardstock. And it took them forever. Sure. It took them forever to do that. Something now that just takes no time. Yeah. But it took forever. And um, so when we did finally release it, the first release is just a photocopy. We just, let's make 50 photocopies. Couldn't wait. And we'll sell them at the, at the show. Yeah. Because this is taking too long. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there was things like that, the mastering, and that was mastered by someone in Benita, who was also a teacher at Hilltop High School. He did not like um, our record, and uh, he told a student that. Um, actually, Sergio's sister, Myra, had a sticker, amenity sticker, and he says, do you know this this band or something? And she said, yeah, yeah, you know. I don't even know if she said, yeah, my brother is in, which she said, yeah. And he said something about it being offensive to him. And um, I'm sure he would even laugh at that. Yeah, at least <laughs> yeah. at least the check cleared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, true. but um, but yeah, all that stuff was it's funny. It was done so locally, but it took so long yeah. to get it done. Yeah, and how did it feel to have it be out? Like it's a real accomplishment, oh, right? It was huge. You want to carry it, it with you everywhere you go. It was huge. Yeah, I want to carry it with it. I think I did. <laughs> um, but um, back in the here. Um, <laughs> No, it, it was, yeah, definitely an accomplishment, and it was incredible because then so many people that I knew that maybe didn't even go to hardcore shows, maybe people I worked with, the surf shop or, or family members or something, like, oh, you what? Yeah. You know, it was just unbelievable. Yeah. And there were lots of people that bought the record that, that may not have ever even played. Oh, absolutely. But just like, absolutely. oh, you, you put out a record? Like, wow, this, this is this was such a surprise. Yeah. And it's very early, 87. It's early. Yeah, yeah. You know? I love the bass tone on it. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's, like, not well thought out. It's just how his bass sounded. But it's, like, I don't know. It's, like, a youth crew record, and it's got, like, a little bit of a dirty sound. Yeah. Which yeah. is, like, nice. Now, is that the first straight-edge hardcore record from Chua? Yeah. Yeah. And is Amenity the first straight-edge band from Chua? Yeah. Yeah. There was and, no one else. And maybe even San Diego. And I... I and I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, there were definitely other straight edge people in, in San Diego, and and maybe I missed that band, um, but um, it was probably also. But definitely no one, no one prolific. Yeah. No one that ran with it. Yeah. That's awesome. And then so a year later, is you're on the Open Your Eyes tape comp. Yeah. And that's a wild comp. That's the Unit Pride, Reason to Believe, Brotherhood, No yeah. Front Answer. That's a fucking lineup virus scene. Was, you know? yeah, yeah. So how did that come about? That was, um, I don't even know if I can remember how that came about. Just someone but, called you and said. You know, we developed this connection um, with Seattle. Okay. And when I say we, I'm not just talking about amenity. Um, but um, really, Chula Vista in San Diego, we developed this thing with, with Seattle. Where well, maybe it wasn't just that amenity was going up there to play or Forrest Down was going up there to play. Or, or that, you know, they were coming down here to play Seattle bands would come down here. But um, just the people that would go to our shows um, would, you know, that would come along with us or any other band would go up there. And so a lot, there were lots of new friendships between Seattle and San Diego. And did you go and, up there? Um, yeah. yeah. What, what would have been the first time before or after the first 7-inch? Um, it would have been after the second after the second after this is our struggle sandwich, yeah. Cool. And then, of course, we had um, 
And then Greg Anderson moved down to Chula Vista. And then we recorded uh, four songs with him, and uh, which he later put out on um, Battery, and which came with the, um, I, I just went blank, Boiling Point okay. scene. Okay. And, um, you know, and then the, that last seven inch Breathe on Scorch Records, mm -hmm. that was put out from Seattle too. So we had um, a serious connection. Yeah, we had all these this connection with, and it continued even after Amenity was gone. There were still I, I don't know I don't think it quite exists now, but there were still other bands from San Diego and Seattle that were going back and forth with each other. Yeah, I drove over my body on tour to Seattle, and they killed it up there. there. Yeah, I mean I don't know if that was just because they were doing really well at that point, or if there was something more behind it, but. uh yeah, yeah and then, I'm not sure. and, you know, and, and and they would have Daniel and Rob. They would have already known people from Seattle. They because Rob was way back when, um, you know, when Amenity was, was playing in the garage and stuff. Rob was there, and so he knew all those people from Seattle as, as well. Yeah, so the sound starts changing pretty quickly mm -hmm. because the song on um, that comp, the Open Your Eyes tape comp, is you're definitely more distorted. It's heavier. You're moving more mid tempo. And uh, your drummer got better, <laughs> or like he started playing like it's not like the it it's not the hardcore cheat beat, you know. He's actually doing double time. It sounds like yeah. yeah. So it's like a a significant improvement. Do you think it's just you get that first record and you're so stoked, but you listen to it, and you're like, we got to tighten this up a bit. Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. And by, I would say even by the time we recorded that first seven inch, even those were the songs we chose, we were already experimenting. You're already past it. Yeah, we, we were already. We were already conscious of being a straight edge band that was going to be different than other straight edge bands. Yeah, and you're on a, a couple comps, kind of like a, a little stretch there. 88 is that one. 89, you're on that Maximum Rock and Roll comp yeah. with uh, Screeching Weasel and Nausea and Christ on a Crutch. Another hell yeah. of a lineup, huh? <laughs> yeah. And that was a song from the Chula Vista 7-inch. Yeah. And then also... You're on the Voice of Thousands comp. Voice of Thousands. Which yeah. is another hell of a comp. Outspoken, Integrity, In Point, Raid, Face Value. Yeah. And that one's wild because you're the first song on it. Yeah, yeah. And and that's a... That was... That's awesome. And that's, again, from the Chula Vista 7-inch. Yeah. And the Chula Vista 7-inch and the This Is Our Struggle 7-inch are both 1990. But I don't know what comes first. Um, <clears throat> this Is Our Struggle came first. Um... That was recorded at uh, Double Time Studios. Yeah, out there in El Cajon. Yeah. Oh, well, excuse me, not Double Time. I got that totally wrong. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> not Double Time, no. Um, Mix Masters. Okay. That was way, way off. We've, we've never recorded at Double Time. Uh, Mix Masters Studio, and I don't even remember where that was, but Mix Masters, there was an engineer named Joe that worked there that was really good uh, to work with. He was learning. We were learning. Joe is actually a um, Grammy Award winning engineer now, engineering for like Green Day and No Doubt and, Holy cow. and all these huge, huge, uh, huge bands. But uh, but yeah, that came first and then came the recordings that were used on the Chula Vista 7-inch. Although that was a cassette demo, you know, it was, it was good. We call it a demo. It was good enough quality to put on, on vinyl. Mm-hmm. But we put it out. You put it out as a cassette first, and then it later came out. Yeah. So, 
But this is our struggle came before. But this is our struggle came before. Yeah. It's hard putting this all in. Uh, you know, <laughs> in yeah, yeah, winter, yeah. you know. It's hard but it's cool. Yeah. And by the this is our struggle seven inch. I mean, your sound is is fully developed. Yeah. You're doing like it's more mid tempo. It's like a unique sound. You got these wild like screechy guitars behind some of it. And how how did you guys like kind of settle into that sound? Who were your influences like around that time? <clears throat> Well, well, I think one big difference is it was change of singers. Okay. Um, Robin, um, Robin was our first singer. He was probably started when he was like 16, sure. or even 15. And um, he left us uh, for his girlfriend, who he was not spending enough time with. And um, and he made the right decision because they've been married ever since. And they have, they have two kids. Awesome. And, and they've been doing really well. But it is the, the classic, sure. you know, got to leave the band, you know, sure. to be with my girlfriend. So, um, so Robin left at that time. And then um, somebody named Chris Squire, who was from Pacific Beach, he saw us at, uh, at some show. And, and he was the one that connected Mike Denny, who became Mike Down, mm-hmm. to us. And um, Mike... Um, um, don't quite remember. Mike, I think we called Barry or drummer. Somehow we connected. Sure. That was, I think, was the big, um, the big turning point in our sound. Although we were starting to write some things different um, and, and experimenting with our sound. Then now we had somebody who vocally had different ideas as well that was going to be thrown into the mix. So Mike, I think, played a big, even though he wasn't playing guitar or anything like that, he played a big part in that too. Just his, his presence was different. His interests, his influences were different. Um, you know, at the time, I think, you know, there was so much like youth crew, straight edge bands. And we loved all that stuff. And we would play with those, those bands. And, um, and, but we wanted to um, throw in all these, these other things that we, we were just, you know, a bad brain has always been my favorite band. And, um, and from them, I started learning about all these other types of, of music, um, different guitarists that I would learn from. And, and you know, you kind of learn about get into one band, and you learn about their influences, and sure. you listen to that, and like, oh, wow, and that opens up a whole new door to something else. So there was, a, I think there was a lot of that going on. Um, for Barry, I would say right about that time, that would have been Mike's um, first show. Um, our, uh, Mike's first show was with Scream, and we played with Scream. We got a call from Scott Bartoloni, who was in Heroin and some other bands, and uh, Scott did Tied Down Productions, and he called me and said, yeah, if you guys want to play a show, Scream is going to be playing, and um, I'd like to have you guys in Villa. And I don't know if I had ever really met Scott in person at that time, but he just got my number and, and offered us this show. And then he said... But I but I heard you don't have a singer. I said, oh no, we got we got a singer, and uh, yeah, we'll be there. And I had never even heard Mike, Mike hadn't even come to our practice. Yeah, but we were gonna, we were gonna try him out. But it's pretty much a done deal. It was good. We want to play with Scream, you know. So um, so fortunately that worked out really well. But I would say also that show a big difference. You know, his name his name gets dropped in just about everything nowadays. But Dave Grohl was playing. Uh, playing for Scream at the time. Yes. He was a 17-year-old high school dropout, you know, running away to, to, with this band. 
And um, he was a really heavy hitter, really hard drummer. And I, I remember that specifically having a big influence on Barry, just saying, whoa, did that, like, the, the drummer for Scream, oh my God, he hit so hard. And it was, it was just, it was very, um, I think it was a big turning point for Barry to see that. And of course, who knew who the guy sure. was going to end up down point. the road. But there was a big, there was a hint of it, that's for sure. Um, so yeah, I think that's what a lot of things. And what, was there a crossover with like the Force Down band and your band? Did Mike play for both? Yeah, Mike played uh, guitar and Force Down. Um, Do you Force remember when they were starting compared to you guys? <laughs> Force Down was probably it was uh, would have been after This Is Our Struggle. Pretty soon. Yeah, it would have been after that. Um, obviously, a shorter lifespan. Um, but it would have been, uh, yeah, I think 89 or 90. And how was that? Like having a guy break off and do another band? Was there any weird feelings about that at all? Uh, no, I don't think there was weird, weird feelings. I mean, we were still playing a lot. Menity was still playing a lot of shows. And, um, so no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. It was kind of, kind of the way a lot of bands were going back then. Everybody had their quote-unquote project. Their main and then their side project. Yeah, yeah. Their side and Force Down was his side project. Yeah. Yeah. And it was kind of, um, you know, to me, I, I do think, it, it, you know, at that time there were way too many side projects. Everybody was saying, oh, we're going to do a side project. My thought was always, well, why don't this other thing you want to do, why don't you just incorporate it into your other band? Sure. You know, I can understand the appeal of a side project, though, but it's kind of like, a lot of bands, they had this sound, and then there was something else they wanted to experiment with. There wasn't that far off, but yeah. they didn't feel like they could incorporate it. And you think they should have just taken a risk and done a little of that yeah. in the main yeah. band? Yeah. 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 I think that's fair. Yeah. So how is Amenity doing? Like, how many kids are you drawing, do you think, after this is our struggle? Um, well, we were playing everything from, you know, garages. A lot of garages, a lot of backyards. And then... Um, the more, you know, I might call hall shows, they scream. Um, that was probably, you know, three, 400 people. Maybe. You're doing like main support on those shows. Yeah. Yeah. There were, um, you know, at that time, you know, the, 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 there weren't a lot of bigger hardcore acts coming through, at least not like today, you know, you'll have a bigger club and some band is coming and, then they got the, you know, there, there was nothing quite like, say, Gorilla Biscuits a few weeks ago. Sure. Um, nothing like that going on. Um, but there was, you know, the acts that were coming through that you could call bigger, Verbal Assault, Judge, um, you know, Chain of Strength, bands like that bold were coming through, but they were all playing in the garage. We were all playing Del Mar's Garage, which is just south of Chula Vista. Uh, in South San Diego. And it was just a garage. It was just your basic. Was it a, a three car garage? Two car garage. <laughs> two car garage. Two car garage and, um, with a washer and dryer. All right. And, you know, some boxes of things being stored. And, um, that garage had, um, you know, it would be ridiculously packed mm -hmm. with kids. Um, everybody would come out soaked. Um, but it, um, just had like a, uh, the bands I just mentioned, Verbal Assault, Judge, Soul Side, um, Bold, Chain of Strength, all these bands would be coming through 
and would play. They'd, they'd ask to play in Del Mar's garage. So cool. And yeah, it was incredible. I, I, I got, um, Soulside played there one time and they loved it. And they told us how much they loved the show and loved playing there. But you kind of, you know, kind of, they're just being nice. It was a good show, definitely, but they're just happy to play somewhere, you know. And I got a call months later from uh, Pete in Verbal Assault. And uh, who I did not know. Yeah. We loved just Verbal out of the Assault. Blue. Yeah, just out of the blue. You can tell. I think Verbal Assault's a, a big influence on, oh, yeah. on the second two seven definitely, inches. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, Pete called and he said, uh, Hi, I speak to uh, Tim Gonzalez. And, uh, and I said, Yeah, this is Tim. Uh, hi, uh, Tim, this is uh, Pete. I'm in a, a band called Verbal Assault. And uh, I was calling about playing the show and Bobby from. Soulside said, um, you know, he played in the garage and he said it was like, it was a good show. And I'm like, like who's this? And he said, this is Pete. I'm in a band called Verbal Assault. You know, and I said, I said, oh, oh hey, hey, Pete, hey, this is HR. <laughs> and then it's just, there's silence, you know. And then I'm thinking, I said, this is Pete from Rome. I said, yeah, this is Pete from Rome. And he told me the same thing again. Oh, yeah. And then he told me that, um, that Bobby from Soulside had told us they played there and that it was the best show on the tour, which um, made, you know, we joked that they must have had a really bad tour. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, uh, but no, it, it was a great show when Soulside played. And he said, yeah, so we want to play in that garage. And so it's like, yeah, definitely, definitely do that. We'll, we'll get you on the bill. And I, and uh, we got them in the bill, and it was it was an incredible show. And it, and it wasn't Verbal Assault playing a garage. <clears throat> it was Verbal Assault playing. They may have well have been on a stage with full sound system and hundreds of people out there, but they were in this garage with a washer and dryer. And, oh, my God. And, you know, mom and dad sticking their head in occasionally in the back door. And it was just – they just gave it their all. And you know, I wish I could have seen that. Incredible show. Just yeah, Trial's top show. five for me. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. Definitely. So it was an incredible show. And they were nice enough, and I don't know how many bands do this, but because we did that for them, then they got us on the bill with them at Gilman Street and then up in Seattle. So okay. we played those two shows with them. And um, How did he go over? And, you know, and, and it, was, it was such an incredible trade. We, okay, we get, sure, we, you we get, get in the garage, show yeah. in the garage. And they give us Gilman Street and Seattle. And excuse me, not even Gilman Street, Seattle. Gilman Street, Seattle, um, Spokane, and Canada. Wow. And um, just being nice guys. Just being nice guys. Hey, you guys did this uh, this for us. And so we're going to give you these shows too. And would that have been your first time going to NorCal? That, uh, I believe that was the first time. Yeah. Well, no, not, not to NorCal, but to Seattle. To Seattle. Yeah, but yeah, you but played, played Gilman before a few times before. Yeah, yeah. Um, played up there, and you know, Delmar's Garage. Um, uh, you know, no for an answer. Local bands, Outward, uh, Misguided Children, all these other bands would would, would play in that garage. Great place. We were really lucky um, to have that place, and for Delmar, who lived there, we were really lucky to have him and to have his, his parents. Well, it is a place that you can see all these great bands, and you're also sheltered from the violence there. Right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, there's no fuckery. No, 
there might have been a little hints of it starting to, to well up, but it was it was shut down. You can keep fast. it out. It was shut down real fast. It was much more manageable. And when I say shut down, it wasn't like, hey, motherfucker, I'm going to kick your ass. Right. It was none of that. So it's it not was, the time or the place. It was, yeah, not the time or the place. And everybody understood that. People would, okay, okay, I'm going to chill out. I'm going yeah. to calm down. So we, we didn't have those problems. Anymore. Yeah. But in the early 90s, it's still going on, all the, the craziness. The violence? Uh, I would say it pretty much fizzed out by that end. You know, the, the, the bigger shows, the Jackie Robinson YMCA shows, um, they were great shows, but they were all, they were all violent. And, um, it, they all just kind of fizzed out. That whole By the force down amenity out. time. By was. that time, yeah. And by the time all these little smaller scenes started coming together and playing more shows together at different places, most of these different places, there would only be like maybe one or two shows there, and then we you know, sure. moved to something else. By that time, that whole other scene, what was called the slow death, kind of scene, that whole scene just kind of phased out. Kind of, you know, a lot of that still existed, but it definitely was not the the main hardcore scene at that time. Yeah, you guys do another comp. This one's on Evolution. Yeah, uh, Cam McClard's label, uh, Heart Attack Fanzine, and. Uh, Again, you get top billing, number one song. Yeah, people loved you guys. I, I always, yeah, that was, that and that's really uh, incredible. and that's Born Against and Bikini Kill on that record. Yeah, and Amenity top billing. That's awesome, and that song is cool. Yeah, it's a uh, like a kind of I don't know, hard to describe. Like it's that real Amenity like dream. <laughs> <laughs> We're keeping it. It's that like Amenity dreamy. Like the dreaminess that is sometimes in your songs, I think. Oh, interesting way to. Yeah, to which kind of like plays into that last record he did. But before you did the last seven inch, you did another band as well. You did the uh, House of Suffering, no? So you're guilty of your own that was, side no, project. That was, that was no, that was after. It was after. That that was after. That was um, by the by the time we played our last show. And what happened? The end of Amenity. Is that because Breathe came out after the band was broken up? It came out after the band was broken. So that's what I didn't know. Yeah. Okay. So why? What year did Amenity end, and why did you decide to end it? Amenity. Um, Amenity ended, I guess, nineteen you know, ninety. Our last show was November thirtieth, nineteen ninety, at San Diego State Backdoor, um, which was the second time we had played there. And, um, it was a much more quote unquote professional venue than we would normally play. And, um, we had gotten, um, well, I, Mike wanted, Mike wanted to leave the band. Mike didn't want to do that anymore. Um, I, I think I attribute a lot of it to at the time, a lot of bands were breaking up. I think um, hardcore had kind of not run its course, but was just at this period where it felt like, hey, I've gotten pretty mature. You know, I'm like 23 years old now. Sure. <laughs> you know, and so so I don't know about this this kid stuff. You know? Yeah. And maybe I need to move on. Maybe I need to do some. Maybe I need to be a DJ. Sure. You know, whatever it may be. And I think a lot of bands were doing that at the time. And really, I attribute a lot of it to that. Um, it was kind of going with the flow of other bands. Everybody's band was, was breaking up at the time. And, um, 
I, I think we had um, we had kind of slowed down on some things. Uh, maybe we kind of felt like we it, it had run its course. That was that there wasn't anything further we could have done. Um, I, I felt we could have. I felt we could have done more. Well, of course um, you could have because that last seven inch is so awesome. Yeah, yeah. And that's like a it's a shame that that didn't come out. When you're a band, been, right? It's kind of like a tragedy, yeah, right? Yeah, because yeah. like it's it's the most interesting thing you guys do. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah. Like that seven inches is the most interesting piece of music that Amenity yeah. puts out. Like it sounds like nothing else, you know. It just sounds like this band writing something unique. It sounds like Amenity, yeah. right? And I, yeah, that's a shame that it's cut short. So of course there was more you could do because. You put out that seven inch and let people hear the songs. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, because I, I really think we kind of evolved into our own little thing. It wasn't going to be like our own scene, and it wasn't like, my God, there's nothing ever sounded like this before. But um, well, I don't we, know if you should we, sell yourself short there. That's very like, I don't know if there is stuff that sounded like that before. It's it's interesting. Well, I, you know, I, I well, what I mean though is it's not like. Um, um, I, I think we had we had created our own sound. Sure. And you could say this this fits in the hardcore genre. It's 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 not the same tempos or this and that. It's pushing boundaries it's, it's without. Un, it's unique. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what I mean is that like lots of bands, they do something different and they think they've just completely changed the history of music. And I th- and I th- I don't think it would go that far. But I do think we sold ourselves short. On that we did create. Well, you didn't. You didn't music. write the shape of punk to come. No, we did not. No, no. <laughs> Thank God. I know. And um, but um, no, we we I think we we did sell ourselves short in, in that respect. That that yeah, it was. But again, I kind of you know goes goes back to what we were saying earlier. Lifespan for a hardcore van at that time at our age, it kind of. We felt like we were veterans. We've been together for four years, right? Which back then is is a long time. Now you live four years, like well, whatever. No, I know. That, but but it kind of it kind of felt like like wow, we've been doing this for so long. Yeah, and you would have been around what age in nineteen ninety one? I have been twenty something. Twenty mid mid twenties. Mid twenties, maybe. Like yeah, that. I mean, there's no there's that's the apex of like. Hardcore washed up, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember being 24 and just being like a piece of shit washed up, you know, like thought I'd seen it all. Like I was rude to people, you know, like just, well, I was fucking 24, you know, it was 15 years ago. <laughs> it's terrible, you know? And, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, same thing, right? You've been in this band for four years, you're in your mid twenties and it's like, you're washed up yeah, kind of, yeah. but then you, you pull through it and you realize like, God, it's so, we're so lucky for every single little thing we have, right? Yeah. Every record that you get to put out, every time you get to jam with someone, any time that you get to like express yourself through music, like it's so finite. It is, like yeah. tomorrow, you could just turn around and no one wants to play with you anymore. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like, wow, I'm never gonna get to Dude. strum a guitar to a drum beat. Yeah. And man, what a sad day it's, that would be. It's one of the most incredible. Feelings. Absolutely. Or, or you know, I, I saw this stupid meme the other day, and it was like, everyone burned their last, like, mixed CD, at, like, someday, without uh, realizing uh, it was the last time they burned it, you know? Because, like, these, it, you know, life moves on or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I always worry, like, 
what if that last piece of music I put out is my last piece of music? music, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's the, I think the lifers are the ones that pull out of like that mid twenties. I know everything funk and realize like how special everything is. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, you have to realize that. Yeah. Um, And that's for life in general, or it's just going to be really miserable. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's the other thing, too, is you need some outside hardcore perspective because, like, you're an old man in hardcore at 30, and it's like, in what other aspect of life would that ever be? Like, 30 is like, you're still a kid. Yeah. yeah. You know? Like, 40, 50, like, these are like the prime of your life. Yeah. But yeah. hardcore, it's like, you're a fossil. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know? So, amenity breaks up, and... How did you feel? Like you're just kind of, was it heartbreaking before? Um, it, it, I would, no, no, you know, it, 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 I wish, I wish amenity had continued. Um, but before we even, um, before that last show, we had already decided, Barry and Serge and I already decided we were going to keep going. And we had a friend named Daryl. Um, who would go to amenity shows and he really wanted to do a band with us. And that last, uh, actually he didn't want to do a band with us. He always wanted to perform with us with amenity. And he, um, on the very last show, he, he does this rap on stage mm-hmm. and which he had always wanted to do. And so he finally got to do it at our last show. So because I told him, you know, this is, this is the last show. So you want, want to keep doing this. So before that last show, we said, uh, we said, why don't we do a band with Daryl? Do a band with Daryl, and we'll we'll mix. We'll have a little of, of his hip hop mixed with what we're doing now and the direction we're already going. And um, so we had already had that set. I don't remember if we already had songs by that show, um, but we had already decided that's what we were going to. That's what we were going to do. And that would become House of Suffering. And that would become House of Suffering. And House of Suffering then um, uh, with Daryl. Uh, continued for maybe a year. If the the seven inches are a year apart, yeah. And um, and that um, that was very different because now all of a sudden we're being asked to play these these venues. There was like Soma in uh, downtown San Diego, and Soma um, was was a big club and had much bigger acts that would play there and um, somebody and I imagine it was Daryl said he went there. Well, yeah, Daryl said he went there and he talked to the owner about playing. And he says, yeah, man, well maybe you guys can play the dungeon. You can play the dungeon and so forth. And um, he's like, no, we want to play the the top stage. You know, they had two floors, yeah. you know, the beginner acts at the bottom and upstairs was dancing and stuff like this. And um, so that was, that was a very different stage. And I don't remember exactly if, if we started by playing the downstairs thing, but it was a big deal and it was very different because we were on 91X before that show sometime. And there was a call. Somebody called in and said, um, why, why are you guys playing? And maybe that she wasn't that angry in her tone, but she, she didn't like that we were playing so much. Okay. And she had good reason to. And she's they're not an all-ages venue. They're this and they're that. And they weren't all ages at that time. They weren't all ages at that time. 
And we did say though that it was our show was going to be all ages, mm-hmm. and we told them it needs to be all ages. But she didn't think we should play it at all because it wasn't all ages. And and I still agree if you can get a club to play for all ages, then, then do it regardless of what they do during the other shows. But um, because yeah, we we were very strictly all ages. So um, so that but that was very different for us. Now we're getting. Uh, I think we played the Che Cafe once, and I felt like after we played Soma, not felt like, we never played the Che after we played Soma. And I, I think they didn't want us to play there anymore because we've become a part of that. So it was very different because the shows at the Che, we were playing the Che Cafe all the time sure, during the late 80s, and now we weren't. Sure. And we weren't being asked to play anything at the Che. We had people questioning us about where we were playing. It was very different. Um, it, it didn't hurt or anything. It, I knew we were in a different different field now. Did this happen after the first seven inch came out? This happened uh, after the well <coughs> during during the uh, boat, yeah. just during the time span of the band. I remember, but yeah, during the time span of that band. And so that was that was something very different to um, have been a part of the scene at the Che to now not playing there and to be a band that was of the people. Right and now we have people questioning us. Now you shouldn't do this, shouldn't play there. And they were all very, very valid um, comments from people that, that questioned these things. Um, but, um, you know, and we stayed in an all ages band, but um, it was different because now we're up on the main stage at Soma and we had, um, you know, different bad religion bands like that that we would be. <coughs> playing shows with really that were you know much bigger at the time. So you played with Bad Religion in like ninety one, ninety two. Certainly, yeah, yeah that's summer. awesome. And then we had um, uh, the Offspring, for instance. We played show with the Offspring were below us, and um, so it was it was a very different scene. Um, there were more people saying like, yeah, you guys need to get on a, a major. Or, you know, all these bands are being signed to majors. Um, Daryl, um, you know, Daryl was, we, Daryl left, we had Daryl leave the band and, um, there was an incident, um, you know, with his girlfriend that we couldn't support and didn't want to be that to be a part of the band. Um, we love Daryl and, um, still today, you know, Daryl passed away four or five years ago. But, um, and we, we remained friends, it was a little bumpy, but we re- remained friends, but he was no longer in the band. And at about that time too, it was kind of like, I mean, I think House of Suffering, the mix of, of rap was, was very mild. We didn't want to, to overdo it. And it was perfect timing too, because right about that time then all these bands were doing this rap thing. And it was, we was like, oh no, we don't want to, we don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, we should talk so about the music a little bit though, because it is like a, it's a pretty hard right turn after like the end of Amenity to oh, yeah. that. Like the, the first House of Suffering 7 Inch, it could be like pretty big nowadays. Like there's such a resurgence of like that, oh, yeah. that 90s hardcore and kind of like a lot of the 90s hardcore that I don't remember being like popular then you know like the the biohazards and stuff oh like, yeah yeah you know i don't i don't really remember them being like a a huge harker band i remember them like kind of playing outside of the scene like i never saw biohazard like 
play a hardcore show yeah. necessarily out here. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, 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 it's kind yeah, of yeah, a little yeah, more yeah. medley. I think maybe there's like a little more crossover. So like the worship of like the the biohazards and the life of agony is like I don't know. These are just bands that they didn't affect me in the nineties. Yeah. I, I like them musically, but they I don't know. I didn't really feel like they were hardcore type bands. Um, but that first House of Suffering sounds very biohazardy for '91, which I think, which is pretty wild because that's like kind of the biohazard era. You might have like beat them to a little bit of that sound, <laughs> you know. And then the second record is like it's kind of another right turn, also. Like it moves away from like the first one's a little more raw and a little more like like old biohazardy, and the second one is like more of a is cleaner. Like, I don't know, it sounds like maybe you spent a little more time in the studio and it's more of like a leeway-ish without like the fast parts, you know, just kind of like, a, I don't know, like that's the sound I get off it. Do you disagree? No, I don't disagree. No, I mean, definitely cleaner, cleaner yeah. sound. Um, part of it, of course, is going to be where we recorded at. Um, but part of it, you know, when we started House of Suffering, that was one thing we said as far as songwriting goes and playing. Is we're gonna tighten up everything. Lots of bands, you know. My kind of pet peeve is, you know, there's like say four riffs in a song, and the drummer's playing the riff one way, and the next time that riff comes around, he's playing it a different way, or he's playing four bars of that riff, and three of the bars he's playing one beat, and the next one he's playing different. And sure, this gets to be a mess. So our our thing was like, no, we're gonna we're gonna tighten these things up. We're gonna this section is going to be like this section the next time it comes around and we're really hone our songwriting craft and, um, and, and the song structure most importantly. And we, so we definitely focused on that. We, I mean, we had conscious discussions about, about song structure and, and keeping things uh, together and definitely by that second one, we're definitely extremely on that. And, um, and then the recording studio, um, was up in Orange County and I don't really remember the name, but, uh, the guy that, um, worked the studio, I remember coming in the back of the studio and a Caton knew the guy and Caton was going to have us record. We come in the back of the studio and it's like, well, in the sound room, uh, you know, we're walking through a couple of guys from head first were with us too. And we're, um, you know, I'm kind of dragging behind, checking out all the rooms. And then as I walk into, you know, the soundboard, uh, the mixing board, and, and the, this engineer this is sitting there. And I just saw him from the back. And everybody's standing around him. And he's talking, oh, you know, this and that. And as I get up close to him, then um, I'm looking at the guy and I'm thinking, like, um, is this guy serious? Like, <laughs> is he joking about something? And um, I couldn't tell if he had a wig on or um, or what, but like he didn't have a lot of hair and it was in ponytail and he was wearing kind of like like a, I don't know what you call a coat, something like they would have wore like in the Civil War. Sure. You know, and I'm thinking, is, is he going to start laughing and take this stuff off? And, and then I realized like, no, this guy is obsessed with recording and that's that's why he's he's like this, and, and as he's talking to us, it's like this is what he does total all day, twenty four yeah. seven. This is his thing, and that's why he's you know he's molded to that chair. And so he was very, um, he probably spent more time on that without us even there than, than we did. 
He was very meticulous with things. Um, one of the things different that in hindsight for me, maybe we shouldn't have done is, is the drums were triggered, which is pretty common now, at least in metal. You know, all these drums are triggered, but he did. And also in all that new school punk from the 90s. Yeah, that, yeah. They trigger the kick drum. Yeah. The Ryan Green sound. Yeah. And so, um, so he wanted to do that. We did that. I don't dislike that, but it was, it was very different. And, um, so yeah, I would definitely cleaner sound. Definitely. Um, which is wild to go for a, a recording that good for a two song seven inch. Yeah. 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 That's wild. I mean, it's just like a sign of the times. That was, and that was, you know, part of that was Kate. Kate was very, um, I was always impressed that Kate would call me and say, Hey, Hey, Tim, Hey. Check this out. I have this I, I, this idea idea, and he'd be singing me these uh, these things over the phone, and like yeah yeah that was good. I never had anybody um, do that. And was, which don't get me wrong, Mike, you know had all these ideas, but he wasn't going to call me up and start singing. Sure. And plus, Mike didn't really sing, you know, and I mean sure. that in the very best way. Um, like I would not sing to anybody over the phone, but. Um, so Caton had that professionalism because of his experience. He knew lots of things, lots of people that we did not have any connection with and knew lots about recording and who to record with. And, you know, we used to go to, I remember going to somewhere Hollywood and, um, Beastie Boys. And I think it was the Beastie Boys and Rage Against the Machine were playing or something. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go. I, I can get us in. And you know, we went to the back, and here's this guy. I didn't know who he was at the time, but it was the bass player of Megadeth. And he's, Kate, what's up? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is blah, blah, blah. And then a little while, you know, walk a little more. And then there's Mike Watt. Kate, yeah, what's up? You know, and that was always. Anyway, in San Diego, Kate would come to San Diego, and every corner we turned, there was somebody that knew Kate. Yeah. And they weren't just fans, they were people that knew Kate. So he had a whole new, brought a whole new professionalism. Um, with him that we strive for. I, I don't think we hit it. Um, definitely not where, where Kate was at, but uh, he brought us a lot of new experiences that we wouldn't have had without him. Yeah. And what do you do for the next 20 years musically? You have a, you have a giant gap on your discogs. <laughs> yeah, really. Between, uh, yeah, so the Amenity, like discography CD comes out in 94. Yeah. And then you do Adult Crash in 2014. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, and what and, was in between? And well, Adult Crash started in about 2000, 2001. Okay. Maybe it was 2001. Did you do seven inches? And um, no, just their 12 inch. Just the 12 inch so, that finally came out. But that came out later, yeah. Yeah. But um, no, in between there, there was um, there was me uh, sitting on my bed playing my guitar. Yeah. And, and you got to have a career too at some yeah, point, right? Yeah, at some point, yeah. And, um, and there was a little amenity reunion. We played a few songs at Unbroken's last show. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, uh, I don't remember what year that was, but that was in there too. And then, of course, the, the next amenity reunion, but there was that small one. But during that time, what was important to me, it was very important to me, actually, and I think really brought me to the next period, um, was you know I was I was still in the hardcore. I wouldn't go to shows as much, maybe not maybe. I wouldn't go to shows as much, um, but I was still in the hardcore. It was different for me then. At that time, a lot of the bands were doing these kind of quirkier kind of styles that didn't quite grab me. But during that time, 
Um, that's when I connected with like Anthony Guzman, Fernie, Alex, and all these guys in this, this Chula Vista scene. I was, I was driving down the street one afternoon and I heard a hardcore band playing somewhere. I'm like, no, that's a live band. And so I'm driving around these streets trying to track this, this band down. Like, where is this at? <laughs> and, and then I'm getting down the street. I'm thinking, oh, it's on this street. And I pull up. I'm like, yeah, it's here. And I, I it, you know, probably like three or four in the afternoon, sunshine, and just suburban street, Chulvis. And I, I'm walking in the side of this yard. I have no idea whose house this is or where I'm going, but I hear there's a hardcore band. And it's a hardcore band. It's, it's not. You know, it's, this is this somebody's playing fast, and I walked back there, and they had this band, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, yeah, and they were playing in this backyard, and I was I was really tripping out, and uh, and I if I remember correctly, they even had an amenity sticker on there, the bass drum, a bunch of stickers on there, and I was like, what in the world is, <laughs> is this? I couldn't believe it. I was so stoked to to see this. And there were all these kids there and they had this band going in. And I think I came in right at the end of the show. And then they were talking to me about their band. And that's how I first met them. Yeah, I think that was Guzman's first band. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they started, um, hey, do you have any amenity seven inches? Like, yeah, I got a lot of amenity seven <laughs> inches, you know. And like, yeah, here, here, you know, this, and, you know, you got any shirts? I don't think I had any shirts. But, um, but and they knew so much about amenity. And it really, that really blew my mind how much they, they knew. And so, you know, I'm sure they, they would say like, oh, it was really cool. He gave us his records and he told us about this. But for me, it was really cool because really what that did for me is, um, you know, it made me think, wow, look at the, this thing is, is still going. Like I knew hardcore wasn't dead. I knew that, but, but this thing out of Chula Vista was still going and these guys and gals were, were carrying it and going other places with this. And um, it was really inspiring for me. It was really, really um, to see these people doing this and out of Chula Vista in particular uh, was, it was really inspirational. It really wanted, really made me want to play um, music. I knew I would play music again. It just wasn't the right timing, but um, it really, um, you know, they have no idea how inspiring that was for me to, to meet them and see what their bands were doing. And, um, and that was really, um, you know, I wouldn't say it started out crash, but it kind of helped it, me speed up to that point when I would start doing, sure. doing out crash. Cause I think one of the things that, that it did that was really different, I think where hardcore was going at that time is it was, it was, it was being much more acceptive of people over 23 years old. <laughs> sure. You know, I, you could see these people, they still like these other bands. And it kind of validated that it wasn't just this little trend. It was an actual culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be in a part of a culture, it doesn't mean it ends at this age. It means it's a, it's a culture. It's, it's going to carry on. And that culture, you see, I, I think you see that more in, say, like New York hardcore or San Francisco, places like that, where you see these bands and, and people that are still part of something, not as much in San Diego. But, um, but I don't know. Them. I don't know if you you should sell yourself short on that either, because it's like the Chula Vista thing was kind of started by amenity and it carried on that way, right? Yeah, okay. like it carried on to the the Guzman era, the and Guzman then it, era. well, I mean, like <laughs> that that uh, that age range, yeah, and then like right after him carried on through to the Take Offense guys, yeah, and 
you know, if you want to talk about it being a culture now, it's like, it's, it's hard to forget that they're like older now because they popped on the scene and they're yeah. like, you know, teenagers and old, yeah. here they are. It's 14 years later or whatever that they've been in a band. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, and they haven't slowed down and they've been waving that same, the Chula Vista flag now yeah. since they started. So that's a pretty long chain. You know, if you're going to say yeah, that amenity started in 85 and it's still going 2019. Yeah. I mean, that's something to be, something to be proud of, oh, especially because, San Diego is not like a, we're not a first tier city. No. You know, like if a band comes here, we don't really ever get them on a Friday or a Saturday. <laughs> you know, and you got you guys probably get them on a Sunday or a, yeah. or a Thursday. Oxnard, we get them on a Tuesday, <laughs> you know. But I mean, it's very similar. I feel like a kinship with like the Chula Vista thing because it's how it was with Oxnard. You know, like you want to like boost up yeah. your like smaller town. Yeah. Like here we are, we're on the map. Yeah. I never understood like people claiming SoCal stuff like that. It's like dude, you're claiming like like Otay to Blythe to like yeah. you know what I mean <laughs> to like San Fernando. You know like what where, where are you claiming yeah, like don't you, yeah. choose your little pocket. And that's why it was so cool. And we were we were trying to like put the Austin thing back on the map. Then you had this band called Diehard Youth, and they were from like. The tiniest little town, Tehachapi. Oh, They're like, "What's up, Tehachapi hardcore?" Yeah. I was like, "This is awesome," you know. So the Chula thing's cool. Like, just to make it a little separate from San Diego. Yeah, it's still San Diego, it's still but San it's Diego, still like, it was, yeah, it's ours. Yeah, right. So Definitely. I think that's cool. Um, and then it'll crash LP or EP, twelve inch EP. Uh-huh. It's like six songs, five songs, five songs. Yeah. What a fucking ripper! You know, like, I don't know. Like, how do you do an album that awesome after being around so long? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, how it's like some people, like, fade and get soft. And, like, you put out probably the most aggressive piece of music that you ever did. Oh, yeah. And it's the last thing you did. The most recent thing. Most recent, yeah. yeah. Most recent released. Most recent um, release because you've recorded again. Crash recording that we, we need to release. Yeah, I think it's six songs. They got recorded. Yeah, how how long ago did you record? Uh, like a year. God damn it! Jump on that, Colin. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Will he do the next one? I don't know. I don't know. Get it out, man! What the fuck? You've been sitting on the recording for a year. Yeah. Hey, someone put that record out. What yeah. the fuck is happening right now? But uh. Yeah, what do you, what what went into that record? And well, I mean, to me, like that record sounds like you went in to do something, and you fucking executed it like exactly how you wanted to. Is that a fair take? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it sounds just so meaty and like. I mean, it sounds like a. I don't know what you call this decade, the 2010s. Yeah, what do you I mean, it's legitimately like the 2010s SSD. Uh-huh. You know, with like an upgraded sound and just like the. The beating on shit and the fucking speed. And then, like, I mean, the only difference would be, like, your voice is more of, like, a uh, like a real yell instead of, like, like a z- like a zany voice, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, Springer's voice is, like, you can't – it's, like, how do you explain it? Yeah. It's one of the most amazing, crazy punk voices ever yeah. where your voice is just, like, a strong-ass, meaty voice, yeah. you know? Yeah. Right? So – Anyway, that's my take. Yeah, I like that. I, I, like, <laughs> I, I like that. Too. I appreciate that. Yeah, that was definitely <clears throat> a very conscious decision that this is 
you know, we want to, we want to be a hardcore band and we want to do, basically we want to do the ACDC thing, which is kind of release the same record over and over and over. Sure. And, um, so, um, so yeah, Pat and I, um, started, um, out crash and with, uh, Oscar who was in Impel, um, playing bass and Kevin Murphy, uh, from far side and, uh, 411 was, uh, and head first was singing. And, um, <clears throat> we played maybe two shows, I think with Kevin, something like that. And excuse me, Rich Zawacki was playing bass, um, at first, as far as the band goes, Rich Zawacki. We went through a few bass players, but it was basically Rich Zawacki as we were writing songs. And, um, and that was definitely our intention. And when Pat and I started, we said, this is, we want to sound, we want, we want these types of sounds and we want to stick with it. And, um, when we recorded that, um, Kevin, we recorded the music and right about that time, Kevin was going through a divorce and um, he wanted to leave San Diego and which he did. Um, I think it was Colorado. He moved to at that time. So um, we were kind of left like, well, what do we do? And we didn't do anything. And we had the recording there and we kind of licked our wounds for a while. And then Oscar, um, Oscar, I don't even remember the order of it at the time, but Oscar, who was playing bass with us then, he, he okay, got it. Now, Rich went, Kevin went, left to Colorado. He was going to be in a divorce and he just was needed to clear his board and, uh, left to Colorado. Rich, um, was going to on a surf trip and he was going to be gone for a long time. And, um, he, he was living, uh, was that when he was living in a van? I don't remember to save money. <laughs> and, um, and then Oscar was playing bass on the recording. So we had that recording sitting there. And then one day I got a call from Oscar and said, Hey, you know, I was talking to Pat. <clears throat> We've got that recording. We have to do something with it. And so you're going to, he just told me, so you're going to sing. You're going to do the vocals on it. And I was like, what? You know, and, and I really didn't want to. Or maybe say I wanted to. I wanted to, but I didn't really feel comfortable because I'd never done that before. And he says, no, no, we got to do that. We're, we're, we're going to practice. We're going to start practicing again. You're, you're going to learn to sing. So, um, so yeah, so by the time we record we had recorded that but then the vocals weren't recorded for years oh wow <clears throat> because we didn't get to that point till years later we had at some point we just yeah we got this recording we did there's no vocals on it so everything was rewritten the music was there but the vocals the lyrics everything was was totally different than what kevin had had and we did that and um and that was our intention because at that time <coughs> hardcore in san diego was it was much become much more metal um, much more some quirky kind of things, lots of weird sounds and lots of, um, you know, things going on that maybe we didn't want to play and we wanted to play a real straight up hardcore. And, um, and so we did. And, um, like I said, we did it for a few shows with Kevin and then we had a huge break, not because we wanted to, but it just sure that way. And then we got going again and, and so on. That's awesome. I don't have much else. I guess, well, someone actually told me, this is an interesting story. You tell me if it's true or not. I heard you kicked POD out of the San Diego hardcore scene. 
I um I didn't kick him out of the, the, the San Diego hardcore scene, but um I think what they were talking about is uh Mitch was uh Mitch had this what we call Mitch's basement. It wasn't really a basement, it was like split level house and he had this room where he played shows where we had shows. There were again lots of big bands for hardcore at the time we would play there. And um I don't remember who was playing, but um you know, I don't remember and or maybe it was House of Suffering that was playing because they used to come to our shows. But um yeah, a couple of them just started pitting and were just not doing it the right way. And 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 I'm open to people's interpretations, but you, you don't try to hurt people and you don't do things in a way where you're gonna hurt people. So um so yeah, so I stopped them. I told them that's not what that's not what you do here, that's not why we're all here. And um didn't kick them out, but they were very um they were very understanding <laughs> and and everything worked out well. Okay. That's funny that someone told you that. Well, that's a good story though, right? That's like that is, yeah. Uh, well, anything else you want to brush on? Um, Do you feel that you've been well represented? I think I've been well represented. I, I do want to say, and to kind of back up to what I was talking about, Guzman and Chula Vista and all that. I, I have to say, overall, what I've, I've always appreciated is that. Um, um, you know, lots of times people want the older guys to respect them and their band and their scene and so forth. And I've, I've always tried to do that. Um, but what else I, I, what I really also respect is, is, is the, um, the younger people. And I, I hate talking that way. There's not a way to say it, but I really appreciate that the younger people that, um, want me to see their band and want me to check out their band or their recording. And so over the years, it's always like, oh, yeah, this is my band. You know, we're playing here, this and that. And um, I've just always appreciated that they found some reason that, that it would be um, worth telling me about their band and hear sure. their recording, check them out live and all that. And, um, you know, I've, I've had, uh, you know, Adult Crash, we're obviously older than the rest of the, most of the bands, not all, but most of the bands we play with. And, um, I always just, um, yeah, I just really appreciate and admire all these quote unquote younger people that are willing to share their scene, uh, with me. And yeah, it is part mine, but it is probably more theirs at, at this point. And I, I always appreciate and respect that. That's awesome. Great. And thank you, Zach. I'm honored to be on this. I heard your other two uh, podcasts, the first two. I've been waiting on the other ones, but I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Appreciate that. Yeah, Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. Thank you. Yeah.